please give attention to the reading of God's word. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory, the, the God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Sirion like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. And in his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Mark 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals... I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the prayer may have gave, given away my aim today. Um, we're going to look at five sections, five ideas within one main idea. And the main idea of today's passage as we begin the season of Epiphany is that even as the Father loved the Son from all eternity past and sent Him with a specific purpose to deliver His creation from 
the futility of the curse which came through Adam's sin, even as all of that was done from eternity past, the Father's love has been eternally set upon the Son. And likewise, the Son has been fully satisfied in the Father. And it might rightly be said that the Holy Spirit is the love between them. That as the Father and the Son relate through the Spirit, that that love has overflowed into creation. And so we're going to be looking at today's message beginning with, again, creation. Um, Hopefully you never tire of returning to Genesis 1 through 3 to examine the foundation of a doctrine. That's what we'll be doing today. We'll then take a very brief amount of time to survey the Old Testament to look at this theme, what does the voice of the Lord do? So the first point we'll be looking at today is that our God is the God who speaks. We'll be looking at the Old Testament for that background. Then we'll be looking at the psalm in the point, God's glory in heaven and earth. This psalm presents a command for the heavenly beings to worship. And then in verse 9, we hear that all in the temple cry glory. And we're going to see how that actually is a very important distinction, that that unification of worship in heaven and earth is accomplished by the voice of the Lord. And then we're going to see how that voice of the Lord, which creates worship on the earth, is then reiterated or recapitulated in the life of John the Baptist. John speaks because worship does not exist. All missions exist because praise and worship do not exist. The aim and goal of preaching and proclaiming is to, as Jesus Christ said, the Father is seeking worshipers who will worship in spirit and truth. And so we're going to see how John's speech, John's voice, is a echoing of God's voice to his people to be prepared for the coming of the Lord. And then we're going to look chiefly at Christ's baptism and testing as the very clear indication of what God's word is supposed to do for his people. And the reason I say that we're going to look at Christ's baptism as a model for what God's word is supposed to do for his people is that it is a principle of divinity. It's an unbreakable spiritual law that as Christ is the mediator and forerunner for his people, everything he encounters is done for the purpose of being the head over the body. If, if you remember in John's gospel, if you've read it, there's a, there's a dispute, and Matthew records just a little bit of this. There's, there's a dispute. Why should the Lord be baptized by John? And Jesus then says, it's, permit, do this, permit it now, so that we can fulfill all righteousness. Christ was not entering into John's baptism as a baptism of repentance, as Mark summarized. Mark summarized John was preaching in the Jordan, a baptism of repentance. Christ does not need to repent of sin, but as he is the head over a people who do need repentance, he receives baptism, and in that reception, he demonstrates for us, God shows through the gospel writers, he shows what was the Father's public testimony over Jesus Christ. This is how this fits with the theme of the epiphany. God sent his son and he revealed his son. Not only did God send his son and reveal his son to be the mediator and the Messiah, the one who would make atonement for their sins, who would satisfy God's wrath and bring them into life, 
it also is the beginning of the demonstration of us as the believers of God, as the church of God, as being little sons like the son. And this idea that the father speaks over the son is reiterated when he then likewise turns around and calls the disciples children of the father. And so we're going to look at this as a grand metaphor and I think it's not a stretch metaphor. In fact, every commentary that I read in preparation went there. Uh, um, that God's word is the most important thing in our lives. That we need to avail ourselves, even at the start of a new year, we need to avail ourselves of the word of God. We need to make ourselves available to the word of God that we would hear the Holy Spirit once again speak over us through his word. And so that's my chief aim today, is that even as we hear the Father's voice of approval over the Son, that we would eagerly desire to have that same speech over us as sons of God and daughters of God. So, um, that being said, let's begin at the beginning, which is, of course, Genesis 1.1. From the very beginning of the scriptures, we hear that our God is a God who speaks. If there's one attribute of Genesis 1 that is hidden in plain sight, so to speak, um, it's not God's power, although that is demonstrably true in Genesis 1. It's not also God's kindness or God's goodness, although that is what he is doing by saying over his creation, it is good. It is that God is a God who speaks He's not a God who is silent. He's not a God who is detached from his created realm. And he's not a God who is unable to express himself. So we see that our God, as in, in who he is in himself, is articulate. He is resolved. He doesn't mince over words. He's not afraid to speak. And he's not confused about what he wants to say. He utters forth his purpose as he is resolved eternally. And he is the God who acts through his speech. And his speech reveals his power. He says, let there be light. And the writer of Genesis 1 then says, and there was light. This is the God who speaks, and his speech is not empty speech. It's not weak speech. It's powerful speech. And so at the very beginning of the scriptures, Genesis 1 is exploding with a theme of God is the God who speaks things into being. His creative speech not only brings forth the world, but he judges it and blesses it. Day after day, he speaks, he declares, he, come, he calls into being something which was not, and then he evaluates it. He looks with his eyes over his created, uh, over his created creatures or created realm, and he then declares it's good. And he does not merely declare it is good as finding some innate goodness in the created order apart from him, but rather he's saying, I wanted light and there's light. That's what I wanted. It's good. So he doesn't just judge in, in a condemning sense. It's not what I mean by that. He doesn't just determine whether or not the light obeyed. He also, by calling it good, is investing it with his goodness. He is installing himself in the created realm in such a way that it would represent him. 
Over and over, the, the Old Testament especially tells us that the created things reveal the nature of the creator. And so God is determined to put himself, as it were, in the created order. Now, I'm, by saying that, I'm not saying that God is in the Son, or that the Son is a God, or, or what have you. Rather, that through his image bearers looking upon and interacting with the created realm around them, they are able to, by his grace, perceive who he is. He installs his goodness into his creation. Through his words, he forms and fills the creation. So, light let there be light, and then he separates it. He forms the light, and then he partitions it. He forms the earth, and then, again, separates the firmament above, firmament below. He forms them, and then he fills them with birds and fish. Likewise, with man, he takes man, he forms man by his hands, and then he fills man with the breath of his spirit. But each time he does this forming and filling, although it seems like his hands, so to speak, are involved or his, his actions are involved in separating, he then again speaks over that which he's formed and filled. And so he's, he's bringing this fact to bear through the writer of Genesis 1, I am the God who installs myself in my creation. Again, to be clear, I'm not saying that the fish are God or that the birds of the heavens are God, but rather they represent something about him because nothing is good apart from God. And so for God to bless his creation saying it's good, we must understand there's something about it that reveals who he is. And he lets us know that by calling it and indeed I think naming it in a sense, good. The, why do I say name? Because that's exactly what he calls Adam to do. As soon as God says it's good and installs Adam in the garden, the chief task that he gives Adam is Adam is supposed to look at the creatures and name them, and they will be called what Adam names. It's a very interesting thing. Adam's speech is like God's speech. God's words, this is my chief idea of this section, God's words do not simply identify what is, but they call forth what should be. By, by saying, let there be light, he is not saying that he found light. He's saying that he wants light. That's an important idea, and it's very subtle, but it's, it's extremely important. Because God's word is the creative element of his action, he calls forth what should be through his word, and it comes to pass. Likewise, when he continues his design in the second chapter of the scriptures, he, again, does not simply act in bringing man a woman. He first speaks. He declares his purpose through the writer. The writer captures God's speech, and he says, he doesn't simply bring woman to existence. He says, it is not good. He makes a judgment and then pronounces that judgment. It is not good that man should be alone. And then he, he creates a helper suitable. And the reason he does this is he reveals his mind and will. God is not just a God who speaks in order for things to come to pass. He speaks in order that we might hear him. 
He lets us in on the counsels of his divine will. And he does that not through some mystical search in our own minds of what the Holy Spirit might be saying. He did that through the writer of Genesis 1 and 2. He does that through the scriptures. He speaks to act and he speaks in order that we might be able to hear him and begin to think like him. Man is made in God's image and as such, as we alluded to just a minute ago, he then speaks as well. The very first words that man utters, the very first song in the scriptures, if you will, the, ver- the very first poem, interestingly enough, is not a praise to God. It's actually just a poem. It is a, and secondarily a praise to God for the suitableness of the woman, but it's first a love song over the woman. This is now bone of my bones. That's, it doesn't begin with the transcendence step, if you're familiar with the structure of hymns in the Old Testament. The structure is, the Lord is God, and we should worship him because. This song is, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And then he goes on to say, after that song is over, this is why a man should leave. I believe that's the writer's commentary. But, but clearly we see that man, being made in God's image, picks up God's tools after him and then does the same thing. He speaks, he evaluates, he judges. He says, this is a suitable helper for me. I'm satisfied with God's gift of the woman. Interestingly enough, and it could, it should at this point come as no surprise that when the serpent enters into the garden, the first words that he says are the chief aim of the attack, the point of the spear is, did God actually say? It should come to us as, at no surprise if we're students of Genesis 1 and 2 that the chief attack of the enemy is questioning God's speech. Notice he doesn't say, do you think that God exists? Do you think that God is good? Do you think that God uh, put you here? Do you think that you arrived by chance? The chief point of the attack is, Is God's word true? Did you hear him the right way? Did God actually say this or did you misunderstand? Interestingly enough, when when you come to communication theory classes in college, one of the things that they tell you at the beginning, especially in interpersonal communication classes, is communication is a job of the speaker and the recipient. Interestingly enough, in the scriptures, That's not the case. God's speech is effective. It is heard. It is received by his creation. And so when the enemy comes and says, did God say? He's aiming at the very central power by which God acts, which is he calls for things into being which are not. Finally, when creation is perverted, Adam joins in with the serpent's Uh, deception and temptation, Adam joins in with his rebellion, the first thing that God does in bringing a judgment, remember he observes and then he makes a judgment, he pronounces good or evil, he then issues a curse over the serpent and over the ground. And God is so kind as to um, bring to mind and and bring clarity as we reread the scriptures, just as a side point, I I thought it was an interesting observation that I've never made before that um, this has nothing to do, well, it, it is tangentially related to our topic today. Interestingly, God curses the serpent and the ground. He doesn't curse the man and the woman. 
He says there's going to be pain in childbearing. There's going to be a curse that's exhibited in your work. Now, Adam and Eve are surely under the effects of sin. They were twisted in their image-bearing capacity. They were diminished in what they were going to be able to do in being God's vice representatives on the earth. But the reason he doesn't curse the man and the woman is because he wants them to be liberated through the gospel. So if you look at a a great view of it, the earth still is under the curse. Romans 8 tells us that the creation is longing for the revelation of the sons of God, and that is beginning to happen through the gospel. That's a small point, but it it hit me like a ton of bricks yesterday uh, and the day before as I was rereading these passages. And I I thought to myself, boy, I've never made that connection before. Um, I I think it'll take me a few years to understand what that means. Nevertheless, the scriptures show us over and over again, God is the one who calls forth his children to exist, and he does this in the exact same way. In Abraham's journeying, God speaks. And it might become a little bit repetitive, but I think we are the ones who are so often hard of hearing. God utters a promise to Abraham. He gives a blessing and a command uh, to follow him. And then he gives a declaration of what will come to pass through Abraham's faithful response. When God called Moses to, to deliver the Israelites from Egypt, he he allayed Moses' fears by this central aspect. Moses was afraid, saying, I'm part of, or I'm not able to speak. And God allays Moses' fears, saying, I will be your mouth. Very interestingly, two verses later, he then says, Aaron will be your mouth. The point is that God is saying, you're not taking your word, Moses. You're taking my word. But just because you can't speak, that doesn't mean Aaron can't speak on your behalf. He then tells Moses that I'll make you like God in front of Pharaoh and that that Aaron will be like you in front of Pharaoh. Very interesting idea. When giving the law after the Exodus takes place, at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, we, we know them as the Ten Commandments, but interestingly in the scriptures, they are called the Ten Words. And the very chief idea before the Ten Commandments is, and God spoke all these words. God is not, the God, not simply the God who creates by speech. He also sustains by speech, and he also blesses by speech. He is the creator God, the deliverer God, and as we see in the Exodus, he's the lawgiver God. Through his speech, he reveals what is on his heart and mind. And that speech is that Israel should not die, but should live, and here is how they can live. The prophets, likewise with Moses, were called to execute God's judgment through uttering his word. When he calls Jeremiah, he says, I have put my words in your mouth so that you might tear down kings and bring up kings. It's a very amazing statement. What he's done is he said, Jeremiah, I've put my words in you so that my creative word would be uttered by your speech and that in speaking you would judge or deliver nations. It's an amazing idea. And so we've seen in Genesis, in the creation, we've seen with the patriarchs, we've seen in the Exodus, we've seen in the giving of the law and the prophets, everything about God's created order is brought to bear through his speech. Interestingly, 
Although Israel had God's speech, they return over and over again to idols. And the chief complaint in the scriptures against the idols is found in Psalm 115. I've quoted in the King James because I like the inversion. They have mouths, but they speak not. That's the chief accusation against the idols. Likewise, when the prophets of Baal call to Baal, they say, O Baal, answer us. And there is no voice and no one answered. This is the difference between God and the idols or the false gods who are no gods at all. God is the God who speaks and the idols are nothing. They're silent because they do not have power. Some of the final ideas of the Old Testament are that God's word will exist forever and ever. It might rightly be said, as we've surveyed the Old Testament, understanding the purpose of speech, of God's speech, it might rightly be said that nothing happens apart from God's word, ever. In Isaiah 46, 10, it says that God has declared, that's, that's a sentence word, that's a speech word, God has declared the end from the beginning. In Job, it, it says that no one's, or sorry, excuse me, Daniel 4, no one is able to say to God, what have you done? Everything that God causes to come to pass is in accordance with his eternal declaration, which then, of course, is found in Christ. So in the context of that Old Testament background, or backdrop, if you will, we hear this psalm in a new way. The voice of the Lord is not simply a spiritual phenomenon which the psalmist is encountering as he's penning this psalm, or right before he pens the psalm. He's not just describing one time where he heard the voice of the Lord. He's actually speaking about all of the effects which demonstrate the power of the voice of the Lord. At the beginning of the psalm, he calls on the heavenly beings to worship God. He calls on the sons of God or the little powers to give praise and glory to God's name. He says in verse 1, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Do you see how this theme is building through the repetition? O heavenly beings, glory and strength, glory due his name, worship in the splendor of holiness. And so he's calling on the created beings, the angels who live in heaven. He's saying, you should worship God and you should praise God. Heard in this harmony, that, that all of that context that we just laid, the psalmist then not only reminds us of creation, but of Noah's flood. In verse 3, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. He's not just describing some abstract concept that God is somehow over a globe, though he is. He's saying that he's over the waters, not only of creation, as we see in verse 3, but also verse 10 of the flood. Verse 3, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. Verse 10 then sets, these are like bookends on the psalm, wrapping the context of the psalm. He says, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits as king forever. And between these two ideas of the reign of God existing in heaven, that is, the worship of God should exist in heaven, and also that the worship of God should exist on the earth, then what is the thing which is between those two? It's the voice of the Lord. What's the point of this? Is that thematically, the psalm moves from heaven to earth, and God's speech reverberates in the creation 
just like we saw in Genesis, creating what should be. Verse 4, the voice of the Lord is powerful. It's full of majesty. It breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. The cedars of Lebanon in the Old Testament were a term for which, uh, some trees which exist till today, a, a group of trees in the mountains of Lebanon which were very, very strong. Cedar wood is known for its um, anti-fungal and anti-insecticidal properties. If you use cedar wood in anything, it will last a long time. And the cedars themselves are full of strength. And part of the reason they have such strength is because that the cedars in Lebanon have to send down deep roots to get into the places of the mountains of Lebanon where there are nutrients and water. And being called cedars of Lebanon, they were understood in that day. The reason the psalmist uses this image is the cedars of Lebanon were the choice wood to use in the whole world. Um, All of the empires of the day would have wanted and would have bought at a costly price, giving up gold and metal in exchange for wood, which was strong like the cedars of Lebanon. So when the psalmist says that God's word is able to break the cedars of Lebanon, he's saying that God's word is a greater storm than any storm that the people of Lebanon or Israel could contemplate because the cedars of Lebanon withstood all the storms. They were used for shipmaking. They were used for temple building and palace building. They were choice pieces of wood which were able to withstand extreme forces. And God's finger does not have to be lifted here. It's merely his voice. God's voice is powerful. That's what he's saying here. Then the psalmist moves to this idea that the voice of the Lord is also shaking the mountains. He doesn't just knock down the trees of Lebanon. He shakes the mountains to the core. Verse 6, he makes Lebanon to skip like a calf. Lebanon is not a, uh, a calf. It is a country made up of mountains. It is a country made up with large rocks. And at the voice of God, that entire country just jumps a little bit. You've ever, ever heard that phrase, you know, jump and you ask how high? That's exactly what's going on here in, in biblical speech. Syrian, again, also is, is another mountain name for a place in Lebanon. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. It's an interesting image, isn't it? We normally think of a dragon who his breath becomes fire. This is the Lord uttering forth his word against those forces which are aligned against him. Verse 8, the, Lord, the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. And so we have this created theme at the very first few verses. The Lord sits enthroned over the waters. And then we move to the place of Lebanon and the cedars of Lebanon and the forces of God. And then we move here to the voice of the Lord operating in the wilderness. And this might sound really reminiscent of the Exodus and the time in which God led his people through the wilderness. Finally, the psalmist returns to this view of the forest, and he then says the voice of the Lord joins the, heaven, the worship in heaven and earth. The great dilemma of why is there no worship in the earth which matches the worship of heaven is answered in the voice of the Lord causing his people to cry glory. Verse 9, the voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. 
there's this interesting aspect of Hebrew speech when you read verses out loud that sometimes phrases sound like other phrases. We have this very same problem in English. We call them homophones. They are words that are different, but they sound alike. And one of the interesting phrases here is this this phrase, if you say it in Hebrew out loud, it also sounds like the Hebrew, which says, the voice of the Lord causes the oaks to be stripped bare. And if you read some translations, some of them go that way and some of them go this way. Now, that's a very academic description, but it simply means that the voice of the Lord is like a hurricane, that when it comes into a forest, even a forest made of cedars of Lebanon, it rips apart the leaves and it strips all the branches and every leaf is ripped off and every branch is pulled down and all that is left are solitary trunks. That's what the voice of the Lord does. He creates it, it, and that's what the next, the next phrase implies, that the oaks are whirling under, they're bending and they're breaking under the power of God's speech. And then finally, and in his temple all cry glory. The worship of the angels of God in verse 1 and 2 is then answered by a glorious response in the temple of God in the people. All cry glory. Heaven and earth are united in worship of God because the voice of the Lord has spoken. It has uttered speech over his people. We see this happen in 1 Kings when Solomon establishes the temple and everything is ready for the worship of God. Then God's glory fills the temple and all of the people, just like these trees have encountered this storm, all of the people cannot stand to minister. They all have to either back out of the temple or they fall on their face crying glory. This is what the voice of the Lord accomplishes. So just as the voice of the Lord creates worship in this psalm, so also God sends forth John the Baptist to utter speech over the people of God, calling them to repentance for the forgiveness of their sins for the express purpose of the word of God himself coming as the incarnate Jesus Christ to then speak to his people. Verse 2 of Mark 1, it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. If you were here a few weeks ago, that might be an interesting connection that it was Christ's face which Simeon saw and said, now I am able to depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. So Isaiah is saying, he's, he's recording the speech of the Father to the Son in the eternal covenant. He says, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. You see, John, although he's called John the Baptist, he might better be called John the Preacher, although that's not as good of a phrase. He's called John the Baptist because he baptized. But the way in which he baptized was not merely people were passing around a message, you have to be baptized. That was a brand new thing in the, in the people of God. They did not understand readily why they had to be baptized until they came and heard his preaching. John the Baptist spoke of a necessity for people to repent and he prophesied and preached in the wilderness because he was testifying to Israel that you are in a spiritual wilderness. He called them out of the cities. He called them out of the spiritual captivity that they were in and called them to repent so that Yahweh could come near. 
The people of Israel were under the curse of God because the heavens became like bronze and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. And here comes John breaking silence of a few hundred years and he says, prepare the way of the Lord. He's about to be here, get ready. And the reason he does that is in order for Christ to have a good reception in his people. Why does God do that before he sends Christ? Because God is a God of grace. He knows that Israel in their current condition could never even possibly, even for a few years, receive the ministry of Jesus. Therefore, he sends John the Baptist to begin to dig up the fallow ground, to to start to break up the hard hearts of his people. And he says, prepare the way of the Lord. How do you prepare the way of the Lord? You respond to his invitation and you repent of your sins. God's word comes, it declares righteousness, it utters forth, there is a need to repent. And then the heart which is operating in the grace of God hears that word and then repents according to that word. Interestingly enough, John's prophecy or John's speech, John's preaching imitates all the preaching of God throughout the scriptures. God says, I'm going to bless you. I'm coming near with a promise. I'm coming near to bless my people. And then interestingly, John doesn't just leave that promise there that the Lord is coming soon. He then tacks on another promise that not only is the Lord coming, not only is God sending his Messiah, that one will bring you the Holy Spirit. Verse seven, he preached saying, after me comes one who is mightier than I. If you think about attending a preaching day in the wilderness with John the Baptist, perhaps the day might have been first a, necessity, a message on the necessity of repentance. And then perhaps there may have been times of baptism. And I would think that if this verse gives any indication to how he divided up his ministry or how he organized it, that the second half of the day would have been John putting forth all the promises of the Messiah. And this is the chief promise which he made to his hearers. After me is coming one who is greater than I, one whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And some, some gospels say, and with fire. Why do they need to be baptized with fire? Because they are full of dross. They are full of stubble. They are full of things which cannot remain when God comes near. Seeing how vital God's word is in the context of the entire scripture, the creation, the exodus, the giving of the law, the life of Israel, also the calling of John the Baptist, we then must hear the Father's voice over the Son as being set in that context. It is not an individual act of God. This is not a brand new theology which needs to be invented to understand verse 11. We have to hear it in the context of God's redemptive plan that's already unfolded. Verse 10, when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Doesn't this sound exactly like our psalm? Worship the Lord, you heavenly beings. And then he goes on to utter a voice. And then all in his temple cry glory. Verse 11, a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Over the waters, the father tears apart the heavens. If you remember that great prophecy of Isaiah, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. This is, God's doing that at Christ's baptism. It's a very interesting thing to observe how important understanding Christ's baptism is for the Christian 
calendar and the Christian gospels, all of the gospels record his baptism and death. Not all of the gospels even record his birth. And that's a very interesting observation, and it's one that I think would help us to to see the importance of what is going on here. The Father is revealing through his speech, the Father's revealing his love for the Son. He then pours out the Spirit in the form of the dove, blessing and anointing Jesus to be the Messiah. Now, Jesus was always to be the Messiah. Jesus does not become divine here. We are not uh, as the heretics who call themselves, well, who are rightly called the adoptionists. Jesus is not becoming God's son. He was God's son. God then says, this is my beloved son, not you will be my beloved son, or now I recognize you as my beloved son. All that is happening here is God is uttering forth his approval over the son, and he does this for a number of reasons. He does it to confirm to Christ himself his love and the father's approval of him already. The other reason he does this, and this is why we celebrated Epiphany, this is why we've done all this work, is he does it so that we would be able to trust Christ, that we would be able to hear God's word as spoken by God's son, and that we would obey and respond in obedience. Jesus says, you trust God, don't you? Also trust me. Or you believe in God, also believe in me. That's, that's why God is doing this, that we would have confidence in the Son. And it's interesting to note that before any miracle is performed in the Gospels, before any healings, before any teachings, the very thing that begins Christ's ministry is a word of approval and affirmation from the Father, that who Christ is in his person is suitable. Christ does not earn the Father's approval. He grows in grace, as Luke 240 and 252 tells us he grows in favor with God and man, but he had that favor set upon him from all eternity past and in his earthly life before his ministry began. Jesus is seen not as the son of the bondwoman. This is an idea that Paul brings forth in Galatians, that the son of the bondwoman has to earn, but the son of the free woman is already accepted. Likewise, the book of Hebrews tells us quite clearly in Hebrews chapter 3, that Moses served over the house of God as a servant. He was faithful, but not as a son, as a slave, as a servant. But Christ came and was faithful in all of God's house, not as a servant, but as a son. And the distinction there might be subtle, but it's important. Christ is not assuaging the wrath of God who is an angry God forever. God is approving of Christ from the very beginning. Yes, he satisfies God's wrath. But it is, not, it, it is not as if the picture of the Father presented through the life of Jesus is the Father is someone who, has to, who is impossible to please. That's what I believe the Father is doing as he speaks over Christ in the hearing of his people. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Not partially pleased. Not eventually going to be pleased. Well pleased already today. Later in his ministry, when God speaks over Christ again, some hear it, and we should say unsurprisingly as thunder. In John 12, that very great linchpin of the entire book, where Jesus is encountering some some Greeks who come to him to hear from him, it says that God speaks over Christ. Christ utters a prayer, you know, Father, I've glorified your name. And then you know, the father responds from heaven. And John has this interesting phrase. He says, some heard it as thunder or some said it thundered. And 
That may have been because they were dull of spirit and unable to hear, or it may have been God's desire to explain, this is the sort of power that my voice has. Like the psalm tells us, the God of glory thunders in his voice. Immediately after his baptism, Christ then begins to testify in accordance with the importance of our theme today, the voice of God's word. He answers the devil's challenge. This is, again, very important. You never take Satan's teaching or the devil's teaching at face value. What was the, <clears throat> what was the chief aim in the, the deception in the garden? It was, did God really say? It wasn't just, have you heard God? It was, was this word true and congruous? Was it, was it established? The chief temptation then put to Jesus Christ, we see in the other Gospels, is <clears throat> uh, G, uh, the devil says to Christ, he says, he, he's not just answering a question of, are you hungry? Remember, Jesus had been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Then the tempter comes and he says, not if you're hungry. He says, if you are the son of God. The temptation that Satan presents to Christ is to doubt the word which was spoken over him and to doubt who he knew himself to be, to submit the proof of his sonship to the devil's criterion. This is why I'm so zealous when it comes to matters of apologetics. What are the standards of evidence? What are the standards by which we come and hear the scriptures? We hear as people who submit to God's word, not as people who are judges over God's word. That's a derivative idea, but it's important. Jesus responds with the statement, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. He quotes Deuteronomy 8. He says that I'm satisfied as God's son in this, I don't need bread as much as I need the voice of the Father over my life. That's what I believe Jesus to be saying. <clears throat> if the Father blessed Christ with his approval before his ministry began, we might rightly ask, how much more do we need the Father to speak over us? How much more? If Christ is sinless and eternally dwelled with the Father, and God saw fit that it would bless Christ and be beneficial for us that God would publicly proclaim his approval over the son at his baptism, then how much more do we need to avail ourselves? We who are weak sinners and not only just sinners, limited in our capacity to receive God's love, limited in our capacity of memory of God's word, how much more should we avail ourselves of God's word in the scriptures? Christ himself is the word of God spoken through the incarnation to testify of the Father's love to God's people. In John 14, 9, he says to Philip that in seeing me, you've seen the Father. And so Christ is the incarnate word. He is the thing which God wished to speak into the world. Through Jesus Christ, therefore, God has spoken clearly to his people through his scriptures, extremely clearly giving them everything that is necessary for salvation and righteous living. Hebrews 1 tells us that in many times and in many ways, God spoke through the prophets, but now he has spoken in this, in this final time through his son. And then the Hebrew writer goes on to extol the virtues of the son of God, saying that Christ himself sustains us 
not just the world cosmically, not just the world physically on a physics or science level. He sustains everything and everyone by the word of his power. That Christ, as the word of God, is also speaking and upholding his created realm. As sons of God, he blesses us with his word and gives us his life and love. And rightly, we understand from the book of Romans that it is God's declaration over us by which we are saved. The scriptures take great pains to show that when Abraham believed the promises of God, it was not as if he was found righteous. It is not as if God simply approved of Abraham's response as some innate goodness in Abraham, but rather the scriptures say that God credited it to Abraham as righteousness. That the faith with which Abraham responded to the promise of the gospel That faith was then, just like God had done in his created realm, and in his created order, rather, God looks at that faith, he observes it, and then he pronounces his approval over that faith-filled response. It says God credited it to him as righteousness. You might think of it as, as in the realm of a courtroom or the realm of an accountant, that as God is seeing the response of faith, which he gave to Abraham, that God then writes it down in his book of life. Abraham responded, he's righteous. That response was done in accordance with the word and the promise which I gave him. So we're not just simply invited by God through his word. We also individually must become the recipients of God's approval and his declaration of you're in Christ. You are my son. You are my daughter. That's what I believe we should take from this experience of Christ's baptism. Peter testified to Christ when, when the people of God were leaving. They, they had begun to follow Christ, and then Christ offered some hard teachings. Christ then says to his disciples, are you going to leave as well? Peter hits this one out of the park. He says, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Just before this, he said, Christ said to his disciples, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. This is the sort of power that the word of God has. It doesn't merely create the physical world. It doesn't merely deliver his people. It causes us to live. It causes us to be able to thrive. Therefore, seeing how great God's word is, how great God's promises are through his word, how foolish it is for us to neglect God's word. We neglect God's word by failing to attend worship on the Lord's day or even coming tired or in sloth of spirit. This is perhaps the greatest sin most believers commit, which is constantly warring against their sanctification, is that they routinely ignore the Lord's day worship. Now, most of you who are here are saying, well, I'm in this sermon, aren't I? It's not enough to come ready to hear God's word or to come and sit in the pew, you must be ready in your spirit. You must be ready in your heart. And part of that includes getting a good night's sleep, just on a very practical level. That's, that's not outside of spiritual maturity, that practical step of getting a good night's sleep. But not only that, we must come and we must expect God to speak to us in his word. Likewise, we neglect God's word when we fail to prioritize it in our personal life. Why, are we, why am I focusing on this so much? It's because so many of us start the year 
with very noble ideals of uh, this is going to be 2018 will finally be the year in which I read the scriptures in their entirety. That is a very noble goal, and part of my aim this morning is to encourage you to avail yourself in a new way, to resolve, to make a resolution to read God's word and to put yourself before God's word routinely this year. But if you read God's word and you check the box every day and you're not benefited at all spiritually, if you just read your portions of scripture and you never, you never wrestle with God until the breaking of day to be blessed in your reading, then you're not availing yourself of God's word. You're merely appeasing your conscience to do your spiritual disciplines. It's good to have spiritual disciplines, but add to your spiritual disciplines maturity. Encounter God through his word. Avail yourself of God's word. Ask for God's benediction as you, as you read his word. James tells us to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. That's what I mean by, by coming to hear God's word both on the Lord's day and also as you, as you read God's word individually day by day. You come with an attitude of humility as a child reading, as a child eating. Interestingly enough, as I'm learning how to be a father, I, I've been graced of God every once in a while to hear something in the scriptures or in a sermon, which blesses my heart because it reminds me of the sort of faith-filled obedience to listening to God's word that I should exhibit. My daughter, whenever she is wanting food, she simply asks for it. And unless we're traveling or unless she's had way, way too much to eat that day, I always give it to her. As long as it's not food that would harm her, like some hot pepper or something like that. <laughs> I, there has never been even the slightest temptation to not give her something good. If I'm a weak, sin-filled father, how much more should I trust that God will give wisdom? Or, for that matter, his spirit. The point is, is that we ought to, like little children, rush into God's throne room and ask for his benediction, ask for spiritual food. She's also, I, I have to share this, she's also, a burden as a father is you have to praise your children. It's just impossible not to. She also has now taken up the habit of coming and interrupting Emily or I whenever we're doing something important and she just like grabs our finger and drags us where she wants to take. It's amazing. That is, the sort of, that is the sort of faith that we should have when we approach God's word, we should barge into the throne room and wrestle with him until we eat. You like all those mixed metaphors? <laughs> the Hebrew writer tells us of the danger. He says, if the word of God which came under the administration of Moses, if that proved to be a real warning, he says, all the more, how much more must we not neglect the offer of salvation in God's word through Christ? So there's positive and negative warnings of God about the importance of his word. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. That's a very interesting statement, and he says we, and he includes himself in that group. Nevertheless, though Jesus was sinless in life, he received the spirit for anointing, and the spirit of God remained. How much more then should we receive the words of God breathed out by the Holy Spirit for our maturity? Many people memorize 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is inspired by God or breathed out by God, inspirated by God. But then they forget to read the rest of the verse. It's profitable. 
it's helpful. It's not just the, you can't merely say, yes, I know this is God's word, that it, that it is the fact that it is authentic and, and inerrant. It's, it's trivial to have those sorts of opinions about the word of God. It is much harder for us to say, it's profitable. I need God's word. I need to be benefited and blessed by God's word. So here is my central aim and charge. As we begin this year, let us give ourselves, give ourselves to the reading of God's word. I find in my own life a need for a small correction. That is, as much as I love God's word and have spent time in it, there begins to become, for, for Christians who've walked for a number of years, they, or even new believers who don't understand the importance of the word, they sit so much under the teaching of men and they do not avail themselves of the immediate voice without mediation of the Holy Spirit in the scriptures. That is to say, as much as reading is profitable in, in the writings of the Puritans, in the writings of the church fathers, in the writings of the reformers, in the writings of the men that we have in, in, uh, in the, our foundational book list, as much as it is profitable to hear those voices, it is much more profitable to hear the voice of God immediately without mediation in the scriptures. Now, that being said, it still takes the Holy Spirit to make the word of God living to us. But the word of God is living. And so I would encourage you this year, as you are formulating goals and resolutions and as you are contemplating, what would, you, what would the Lord have me do this year? Consider how you might afresh give yourself to the reading of God's word in 2018. Let's close with prayer. Father, we thank you that you spoke over your son and oh, that you would give us that gift. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit by which we cry out, Abba, Father. We pray, Lord, that you would give us that mighty grace that as you say, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter, that we would respond with Abba, Daddy. But Lord, we know that as much as you have given us the Holy Spirit, we know that he is not ever against the scriptures. As much as we love your promptings and your voice, uh, moment by moment, by the Spirit, we pray, God, that you would bring us into full maturity and see that there is nothing opposed between your Spirit and your Word. We pray, Lord, that you would give us this gift this year, that you would give us mighty hunger and also the ability to wrestle with your word and to, to not only drink milk, but to move on to chew meat, that we would find deep and wonderful grace in your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word is a means of your grace, that it is an avenue by which you wish to bless your people. Lord, we ask for hearts that would want to receive that blessing. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.